For over 27 years, LearnIt has helped more than 2 million individuals develop new skills and empowered them with confidence to thrive in an ever-changing workforce. We welcome you to the LearnIt Podcast, where we come together as employees, managers, executives, and learning champions from across the globe to take time to focus on our professional development. Together, we will tackle today's toughest challenges and dive into the topics that are key to success in today's workplace. Stay tuned to listen and learn from LearnIt expert instructors and the LearnIt community in order to upskill, reskill, and achieve overall success in your career. To learn more about LearnIt and our diverse offerings of soft skill, business application, and health and wellness workshops, please visit www.learnit.com. I am thrilled to be joined here today with Julia Tronziak for our event on Taming Your Inner Critic. Julia, thank you so much for being here. Carly, thank you so much for having me. Happy Friday. It is such a pleasure to be here and excited to dive in more. Without further ado, I want to provide a little intro to Julia for those of you who don't know her yet. Julia is a trauma-informed life coach. She is a yoga instructor, mental health advocate, and Down syndrome advocate. Uh, Julia has had an incredible career working for large uh organizations as a business consultant, helping companies thrive and create healthier um, work and training programs, and just recently launched her own business and coaching practice. So we're so lucky to be here with her. She's really a thought leader in this space, a super ambitious entrepreneur, um, and just as a friend has been an amazing person uh, for me to get to know over the last year or so, as we've both navigated a lot of different life and career transitions. So Julia, thank you for for being here. I want to start with just uh, sharing a little bit more. I know I gave a quick introduction, but just about who you are and, and what got you to where you are today. Absolutely. Thank you, Carly. And thank you for that sweet introduction. Such a pleasure to be here. I think just to get back down to, it, I think the most important place to start is I have a twin brother who has Down syndrome, who I had the pleasure of growing up with. And Michael's kind of been my inspiration behind everything that I've done in my life. He has Down syndrome. He's completely nonverbal. So he taught me so much about how to just be a better human, how to practice kindness, compassion, unconditionally loving yourself and others. And growing up, you know, he had to go to the doctor a lot. He had a lot of different health conditions. So we were always in the doctor's office. I also got sick a lot as a kid as well. And growing up, I just wanted to help people. So the obvious answer to me was to go become a doctor. Maybe there's a little bit of an influence from my parents because they were immigrants. And I feel like most immigrant parents tell you to be a doctor and become an engineer. And so it figured out that, you know what, maybe being a doctor is going to be the best thing. And so I worked really hard in school. I ended up going to UC San Diego. I was a pre-med student, but not only was I a pre-med student, I was also a collegiate athlete. I was on the swim team. So I'd be getting up at 5 a.m., going into practice at 5.45 a.m. in the morning, which is crazy to do in college. And I realized during that time how important it was to be on top of your mindset because no matter how many laps you were doing in the pool, no matter how much you were studying, if your mindset, if your headspace wasn't in the right place, you weren't gonna perform well in the pool, you weren't gonna perform well in your exams. And so it really made me reevaluate, how am I showing up? What mindset am I utilizing? Am I actually performing at my best right now? Or could there be something that I could do a little bit differently? And throughout that time, I was volunteering in hospitals and kind of realized, this probably isn't going to be the career path that I really want. I'm someone that loves to connect with people, loves to understand their background, their stories. 
And I kind of realized I wasn't going to get that in the healthcare setting, which is totally fine. And so I had to pivot. So I ended up going into the insurance world. Never thought I would have been there at all. Um, but I worked as an insurance broker and it was really exciting. It was really amazing to learn how medical dental vision packages get created. I got to work with a lot of CPOs and CHROs and CFOs and kind of start to understand the business world. And I loved it because there was that element of mental health included as well, which is something I'm so passionate about, especially having had anxiety and also being diagnosed with complex PTSD a couple of years ago. I've just really realized how important it is to take care of your mental health, to be on top of that. Because if your mental health isn't really where it's supposed to be, your physical health also is going to suffer because of that. And I love that there's so many mental health vendors coming out into the space. And it was incredible. It was something that I loved, but I also realized I've always wanted to become a coach. There's something that's just so empowering about getting to work with someone, getting to understand if their mindset is in the right space. Do they have any limiting beliefs? How is their past showing up? Or are there any patterns that they're repeating? And so earlier this year, I kind of had to pivot and decide, do I want to become a therapist or do I want to become a coach? And ultimately, a lot of people don't really understand the difference between coaching and therapy. With therapy, it's very much intended to take someone from the past and get them into a safe place in the present, whereas coaching takes someone from the present to excel for somewhere in their future. And just with where I am, I knew that a therapist was not going to be a place that's going to be well served for me. I've had too much trauma in my past to really hold that for someone else, which is why I've gone into the coaching direction. And I'm, it's been such an amazing change and it's exciting to be here today. Wow. Thank you, Julia. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your journey and, and just what got you to where you are. Uh, I also think that difference between coaching and therapy is really interesting. I've never had, I've never heard it in that sense, but I think it's, uh, I think that's a really beautiful way to kind of state that difference um, and just how both are amazing avenues and both are great for different needs, you know, in your life. So um, amazing. I want to share and kind of dive into more around our, our topic, because I know just just around taming your inner critic. And I know that that is, you know, that permeates, like you said, being a collegiate athlete you know, you were, you were pre-med, um, that probably permeated everything, a part of your journey, right? We've, we all encounter that voice in our head, um, around, around that. And I'm wondering kind of for you, if, how are, how have your experiences, you know, led you to, you know, I know you're a yoga instructor too. So how, what made you want to focus on specializing and helping people kind of break down their own barriers and, and tackle that voice, you know, what, what inspired, what inspired that? Absolutely. So I didn't even realize until I was diagnosed with complex PTSD that I had such a strong inner critic and it was showing up to me, especially in the workplace. Whenever I was giving presentations, when I started as an insurance broker, that was actually the same time that COVID happened. So everyone started moving on to zoom and I'm someone that loves to see people's facial expressions their body language. Like I take a lot of that information in when you have these little screens, you miss a lot of the body language that's happening, especially if people are on mute, you don't know what they're thinking. And so every time I was giving a presentation, whether it was a, to a CPO, a CFO, whoever it may have been, there is always a running dialogue in the back of my mind saying, you're not saying the right things. You shouldn't have said that. These people are judging you. They look bored. That person just yawned. They think this presentation is so boring. Why are you even here? And it was just so constant. And I was also a yoga instructor as well. And I'm sure you know, also teaching yoga, a lot of people when they come to take their practice, 
they've probably got a serious face going on. I know I do as well when I practice, but my inner critic was kind of seeing the lens. It was kind of the lens of how I was seeing the world essentially. So even when I was teaching, I would see people's faces and think they're judging me. Oh, I don't think they like this class. All things that were completely untrue, but that was just how I was seeing and experiencing the world. And it kind of was seeking, it was kind of seeping away a lot of the joy that I was experiencing. Like I love being able to teach people in their yoga practice or to be able to give presentations and support others with their benefits at the time. But having that constant dialogue was really taking away a lot of that essence and making me question, am I even good at what I'm doing? There was a lot of imposter syndrome provided there as well. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so so much sense. I can totally relate with that with teaching as well. You, you're always thinking about, you know, how your class is being interpreted or how your work's being interpreted. Um, and I know many people in the audience, you know, might be struggling with their, their own inner critic and that, that could be a motivation for being here. Um, can you define, and we say inner critic or that inner voice, can you kind of help us define what the inner critic is and, and why it's important to, to address it? Yeah, absolutely. So the inner critic is a voice that's within your head. It's something that every single one of us have. And for some of us, some of us may have learned how to tame it and learned how to silence that voice to be able to ignore it. But I think the most important thing to remember is that you're never going to be able to kill your inner critic. It's always going to be there. That voice is always going to be in the back of your head telling you what to do or what you shouldn't have done. And a lot of that stems from the voices that you heard growing up, whether it came from your parents, your peers, maybe bullies that you grow, grew up with. It's a compilation of all those voices. And I think it's so important to remember that your inner critic isn't you. It's just a small part of you. It's just there. But when you learn how to separate it from yourself and you learn that this voice doesn't represent who I am, that maybe it's telling me I'm not doing well in this presentation, but people are giving me really great feedback afterwards. You know what? Maybe I shouldn't listen to that voice anymore. So it's a really fascinating thing to learn how to live with, but you can absolutely tame it. And it doesn't need to control how you're showing up in the workplace, how you're showing up even in your own relationships. It doesn't have to dominate the story for you. I love that. Yeah. I think that's great. I think what you said too, of like having a relationship with that, with that voice, right. Is I think someone's like, Oh, it's just going to go away one day or, you know, one day I'm going to get to a point where this, you know, this isn't something I have to address. And it's, I think it's that it's, there's always going to be, you know, voices internally and externally, but it's like you said, kind of having, having that relationship with it and then not letting it dictate your behavior or your actions. Right. So. Absolutely. Cause it's so easy to let it hold us back. And I think it's, it's something that also stems from a lot of perfectionism, that imposter syndrome. I think at the end of the day, our inner critic really wants to keep us safe. Yeah. Because change is really scary. Going up and getting even a promotion or changing roles or finding a new career, those are all very scary things. Mm -hmm. And so I think our inner critic is just there just to try and keep us safe in the way that it thinks is the best way to do so. <laughs> but sometimes growth has to be scary. Growth has to be uncomfortable. So it's learning to say, hey, thank you so much for trying to keep me safe, but I'm going to be the one that makes the moves of my career, what I'm going to do. And this is up to me to decide. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Right. Thank you for your input. Thank you. I, he I hear you. Um, and this is this is how I'm going to move forward. Right. I'm not going to let you run the show or keep me in that fixed mindset. Keep me in that scarcity mindset. Like you said, that comes from a place of wanting to stay safe. 
Uh, I think that's huge because it doesn't mean that that voice is malicious. It's just trying to ultimately keep us, keep us safe. Right. So yeah, I love I love that point about it. Can you tell us, you know, we were ta- you talked a, a little bit and you mentioned how it can hold us back in our career, that voice. Can you share or tell us about a specific instance when your inner critic was particularly challenging and and maybe how you how you overcame that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was kind of like what I shared earlier. It was when I was giving presentations. I remember I'd have a mentor on my call, especially my first year um, when I was an insurance broker. And during that call, I would look at whether it's the CPO's face or the head of HR, whoever that person was and seeing them and thinking, oh my gosh, they don't want to be here. They think this presentation is boring. I'd watch them yawning or doing something. I'm thinking, oh, this is horrible. This isn't going well. I'm not doing a good job. And it's really hard to uh, perform well or to give a presentation. You know, a lot of people already find public speaking or just presenting to be scary enough as it is, Mm -hmm. but to have that dialogue in the back of your mind is kind of exhausting. It's so exhausting to have to hear this constant criticism, always telling you that you're not doing something well enough or that you're not good enough. And in so many of these calls, I'd ask my mentor, okay, well, what did you think? How did that go? And they'd say, you did such an amazing job. That was so great. And I never believed them. Mm. I always like told them, like, are you sure? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I kind of had to realize afterwards that this wasn't okay anymore. I couldn't keep living and keep having a career like this where I having my inner critic run the show for myself. And so there came a lot of tools that I had to learn. First and foremost was giving my inner critic a name, mm-hmm. actually labeling it as something outside of myself. So I actually named it after a bully that I had growing up. I'm not going to say the name just for to protect that person, but <laughs> it was so much easier to give that person a name and a label and give them an entire identity. So that way, whenever it would show up, I could say, hey, you know what? Right now is not your moment. Thank you so much for trying to input that little piece of dialogue, that information, but I can do this. I've got this, and this is up to me. And I think incorporating that, one, just having that persona, but two, having that sense of compassion goes such a long way. Because I think living in this state of anger or in this state of constant criticism it's exhausting. It is so exhausting putting your energy out there, but having this internal conflict going on, people can feel that they can see that that's happening as well. And when you just come from that space of compassion, it makes it so much easier to silence that voice, push it aside and to do things in your own way and to let your own personality shine. Yeah. Gosh, I love that. Yeah. Mine, mine is actually, it's funny you mentioned a bully. Mine is called Bully Bob. I have a name for my inner kid. I've been that since I was little. Um, yeah. Oh, I, I love to, that. Yeah. So that's, that's so, that's, I, yeah. I, I'm, it's so funny. And it, cause it kind of feels like a bully in your head. So, right. uh, and it doesn't have to be the name of like a no, human. It can be yeah. like Darth Vader or a Sith. Yeah. Can you tell I've been watching a lot of Star Wars? <laughs> you can name it after a character or even just an object something that makes you take it a little less seriously and realize, you know what? I don't need to listen to Billy Bob right now. Right. Whoever's <laughs> coming up right now. <laughs> right. It's like, that's just Bob doing his thing. You know, exactly. all right. He's here. Exactly. He's with us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, I, I love that. Um, amazing. And, and I think you really bring, you know, a unique perspective 
to your work for several reasons. You know, one of the main influences and sources of inspiration I know has been your your brother Michael. Um, so I'm I'm curious. Can you can we talk about that a little bit? Of you know, how does your relationship with him really shape your approach to helping others? You know, really really address their own inner critic, right? Because mine mine is bully Bob, but it might look different to everyone. So I'm curious how how your relationship with your brother and, and that compassion that you just bring to your work that you've referenced, you know, how that, how your relationship with him kind of shapes that. Absolutely. Such a great question. Thank you for asking. I think I always, the way that I always love to describe Michael is I always say that he may not speak to me in words, but he communicates through love better than anyone else that I know. And it was just so fascinating growing up with him. Like he was never able to speak, but there's just so much compassion and so much love. And something that I really love about Michael is that he doesn't care about who approaches him. As long as someone's kind to him, he will extend that same kindness right back to them. He doesn't care if it's a boy, a girl, what religion they practice, who they love. As long as you're kind to him, he'll extend that same kindness right back to you. And it just kind of makes me wonder, like, what would our world look like if we all kind of practice that same unconditional love towards others and especially even towards ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that when you're practicing that self-love or practicing cultivating that self-compassion with yourself, we all have parts of ourselves that we may not absolutely love or we may feel ashamed of, or maybe we've had different experiences in our lives. We have different layers that we're made up of. Maybe there's those layers that we're not proud of, but they got us to where we are today. And when we can learn how to extend that compassion, that kindness back to ourselves, one, it makes life a lot less exhausting, but mm -hmm. two, it's just such an easier way to handle that. And especially using that with your inner critic and acknowledging, like, I think one thing I will also have to ask to add in as well is that you can hold two very different perspectives at once. You can be really frustrated with your inner critic for trying to hold you back or for adding its invoice in, or for adding its input in whenever you're giving those presentations, you can have that frustration, but you can also hold a sense of compassion and understanding and knowing, you know what, it's trying to keep me safe right here. I can learn to push this aside and I can still push through this as well. So I think there's a lot of dichotomy that's involved as well. And that's totally okay. But I think just having that experience with my brother has just taught me how to see the world in a very, very different way to advocate from a space of understanding. A lot of people don't know about Down syndrome that well. They hear about things from the media, but they may have not experienced what it's like to live with someone like my brother. Mm -hmm. So I think coming from that space of understanding, from curiosity and from compassion makes things just form in such a very, very different way. Mm. Yeah. And I, I love what you said about the unconditional love. There's this purity, I feel like, to to that love too, where I think it's, it's inspiring. And then it makes you think, okay, how can I, you know, be a little, show more true, compassionate, genuine love, um, in a way that's authentic to me, but that has a sense of purity to it. I, just when you were talking that, that word came up, um, of just that like pure love that even the photos you show with your brother, you can just see it on his face. And I think, um, sometimes, right. A lot of us, because of that inner critic or whatever it is, you know, we walk up with, with a bit of a wall going into the world, which is, which is needed a lot of the times. But I think sometimes it's, it's being like, how can I take my own walls down so that that critic is there, but I'm ultimately walking through life and my interactions with, you know, that executive or whoever it is with like, a, with that, that 
pure kind of open, open compassion, you know? So um, I can just see that, that kind of that approach being, does that kind of resonate? Does that make sense? It yeah. does. I bet that just, that touched me so much. Cause I think pure is something that I do see my brother has. He's just has so much pure love. He has no biases against other people. And it's just, it's fascinating to see that and just see how he just leads in the world in that kind of sense. And yeah, he'll wear his emotions right on his sleeve. Like there is no hiding. There is no inauthenticity. And I think it's just such a powerful way to live in the world and that purity as well. Just having that love, that compassion, being so pure, not letting your past experiences shape your lens of how you see the rest of the world and how you interact with others is so powerful. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Um, yeah, amazing. And I know, you know, that kind of leads into a little bit of like the the yoga and the mindfulness practice that I know you have. And I know you teach, you know, almost every day of the week. Um, we're both we both teach at Core Power and have for a long time. So it's always fun talking to you about about that experience and being longtime teachers. Um, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about you know, some mindfulness practices or yoga practices that can be effective tools in addressing and managing the, the inner critic, um, you know, techniques, exercises, anything that our audience might be able to try. Absolutely. I think one of the most powerful things about yoga is just that mind body connection, because so many of us have been taught to live in our heads. And what that means is we all have that monkey mind that's racing in our heads that has thousands and thousands of thoughts a day. And it is so easy to get caught up in your head or go through different rabbit holes within your mind. I know I used to have crazy anxiety. So I would stress about presentations and think about the worst case scenarios over and over and over again. My inner critic was definitely fueling that as well. But what was so fascinating about going to yoga is you're starting to slow down and you're starting to connect with your body. You're starting to learn how to center yourself and ground yourself. And if you're hearing these phrases and they sound really woo and you're wondering, what does that mean? It means getting out of your head and starting to really live in the present moment. Because so many of us either ruminate on the past and something that might have happened in the past, maybe in something that we might have even said or done or wish that we had done differently. I know my inner critic led to a lot of rumination that wastes a lot of energy in your mind. Or maybe you're anxious about the future and what's about to happen in the future. But when you're living in the present moment, you're slowing down, you're realizing what's in front of you. You're noticing, oh, my cat's right next to me. I am safe. Everything, you know, you're starting to really take in your environment. And what's so powerful with yoga, I'm sure you've experienced this as well. When you're doing really challenging postures, when you're holding really hard balancing postures, for example, you have to be present. If you're not present, I've every time I'm in a balancing posture, whether it's airplane or a balancing half moon, I'll notice if a thought comes into my mind that I attach to, my body will start to shake and I'll fall out of that posture. So it's a really important practice to learn how to just have that mind and body connection. But I think even more importantly, it teaches you how to breathe. If there is one thing that I wish everyone could learn, it's about the power of your breath. And if you're wondering, what does that mean? I mean, our breathing is the one thing that we always have. And it's the best tool that we have to calm ourselves down. So whenever your mind is ever racing, maybe your body starts to feel really tight. I know when I'm feeling anxious, like I notice my shoulders drop down. I feel like I'm literally getting smaller and my mind will be racing. My breathing will be really shallow. It's in those moments where I remind myself, am I even breathing? 
And just doing the simple act of taking a deep breath in from your belly, actually using your diaphragm is so calming. And I always, in my yoga classes, every single class, I have a moment where I tell everyone to put their hand on their heart, another palm onto their tummy, and just notice their breath flowing from palm to palm. Because when you do that, you can actually take your nervous system from being in that sympathetic, that fight or flight state where your that fight or flight state where your mind is racing, back to that parasympathetic, that rest and digest state. It's the one thing that you can do that can actually help facilitate that. And I think when you learn how to do that on your mat, you can use that same tool when you're in your life, even when you have conflict happening, even if you're having a discussion that's really tough with a loved one. You know, we all have those moments learning how to just stop and take a breath before you respond makes a huge difference to actually respond from a place that's actually compassionate or understanding versus being very reactive. And I think we can use that same tool with our inner critic is just noticing when that voice is coming up, noticing, okay, here's Billy Bob. Billy Bob's trying to tell me something and asking yourself, how am I feeling in my body right now? Am I really tight? Am I hunched over? Is my mind racing? Do I feel a little queasy? And just slowing down and taking a deep breath. It's kind of fascinating what happens when you just take a deep breath in, let that breath out. It just, I always notice my shoulders start to sit up a little higher. I feel like there's like a weight lifted off my chest. And that's such a powerful tool that you can use whether it's with yourself, with your inner critic, but something you can also use in your life, especially in the workplace. If you have a challenging colleague or some sort of discussion you have to have, it's such a beautiful way to just give yourself a little reset and show up the way that you really want to show up. Mm. I think it's, I, I so agree. And I think that, like you said, the, the core of it is really the breath of giving yourself that time and space to reconnect, you know, with your body and, it, and it's so simple. And then, like you said, with the yoga practice, I love what you said about like when you are in a challenging pose, like you can literally see if you're like clenching your teeth or you're not breathing, like you will fall out of the pose, you know? So because you're moving slow enough to actually see all those little micro movements, see where you're holding tension um, versus in most of our everyday lives, right? When we're, when we're moving so fast that we don't have the time or space to even recognize or pinpoint like Oh, that's where I'm holding tension, or oh, that's the thought, or the 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 um, spiral I'm in, you know. So I think yoga is a good opportunity, like you said, to to create that time and space to recognize what that pattern is or that critic is, because um, you have the time and space to to hear it and listen to it and and be like, oh, that's that's what that is, you know. So and kind of isolate it. It's almost like taking something, you know, in a petri dish and being able to really see it more clearly. Um, versus just marinating in it all the time. So I, I love, I love what you said there. That's Um, a beautiful analogy. And just like you said, it's like, it's not, you don't have to marinate in that, but just being able to take it apart and look at it at a little Petri dish. It's so much easier to take it so much less seriously. And it gives you so much of your own power back, which I think is so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I think that also speaks to, a you know, the safe space that I think whether it's your yoga, you know, a yoga mat, your yoga studio for me, right. For me. And I know you, that's like a space that just feels like really nurturing and you know, you can come back to right. Every time. Um, I know you talk a lot about in your work that it's really important that 
clients create a safe and supportive space to really be able to heal and grow and, you know, reach, reach their goals. And so I'm wondering, can you elaborate on the importance of a safe environment in, in this process of learning about your inner critic and maybe how people can create um, safe spaces in their own lives? Absolutely. I think for myself, safety is one of my most important core values and having that space of safety. I think our nervous systems, when we don't feel safe, that's where a lot of anxiety can come in. That's where a lot of that anxious thought processes can really start to happen. The spiraling starts to happen. And for myself, like a lot of that safety actually gets cultivated from what I've learned with my brother, just bringing in that space of compassion, that understanding, that lack of judgment, and just seeing someone as a very, very whole person, knowing that they are fully capable, they are totally able to make their own decisions, they already have a lot of those answers within them. And having that safe environment is so important. That's why I mentioned so much of that compassion, that unconditional love, especially when it comes to your inner critic, because that can lead to so much inner conflict. When I mentioned I was giving those presentations, it almost felt like there was a battle going on within my mind of, you know, sharing about all the benefits that I was presenting to, whether it was about the medical benefits, the dental, whatever that might've been back then, there was almost that duality within me. There's that presentation externally, but there was also that internal conflict in my mind about, oof, am I saying the right things? Is this even going well? And not having that sense of safety is exhausting. It takes so much of your energy away. When you learn how to cultivate that, it helps you show up in such a better way into your world. It helps you show up a little bit more authentically, stop worrying about what other people think. And a lot of the ways to help cultivate that sense of safety, I think one comes from your breath, teaching your body that it's safe where it is especially I'm sure, I don't know if you've heard about this, but a lot of people do like ice baths or take cold showers. Cause when you learn how to breathe through uncomfortable situations, you're starting to train your nervous system when it's in those tough situations in the future, that it can really be safe, that you can use your breath during those really tough times and still find that power within you, which I think is so, so important. Wow. I didn't think about it with, with ice baths and some of those, like, right. When you're self-inflicted, when I think of pain with the ice baths, I'm like, we used to do it, have to do it for cross country every day after races or after, um, after a long run. And I, right. You're just clenching. You're like, why are we doing this? You know, but th that's so true. I never really put two and two together that that's actually training your body to self-regulate when you're in, <laughs> you just want to like get out, you know, right. uh, possible that's uh do you is there and do you do what do you do at home do you do anything at home I'm curious well two questions for you kind of elaborate on that like what are your thoughts on on your home space I know some of us have like you know some people are still working at home some of us are back in office um but I think some of our workspaces you know again there's a lot of very a lot of factors we can't control about the physical workspace we're in you know but I think there are some facts some things that we can control that that can kind of create that safe safe space. So I'm also wondering, like physically for you in this in your in your space of work, um, for you, like what have you found effective? Whether it's you know like plants or or physical things that give you comfort, but I'm wondering if there's if you have any tools on like physical space during work that you found helpful. Um, yeah, I'm wondering if you can share anything on that. Just because I know we're kind of in a space where everyone's workplace looks different, but I'm curious if you have any tips on that. 
Absolutely. Such a great question. I think I've noticed that a lot of the times, like your outer environment can also reflect some of your inner environment and vice versa, right? Like if your mind is kind of all over the place, that might also be projected out to your outer space as well. And so for myself, like what I've done is just having a very clean space. And I'll be honest, it's not clean and organized at all moments, but especially before I get into my work, I'll always clean my desk and reorganize the place and just make it feel a little bit more clean, a little bit more welcoming. I love plants. And when I did used to work in an office, I had so many plants in my cubicle because I loved it. It brought me joy. And I think taking that time to really find the little things that bring you joy. I mean, I know a lot of people, I also had a picture of my brother in there, just something that just sparks that support, that love, that happiness. And even especially something that I did in my prior role and I was working remotely, I, everyone in that company knew that I was the OneNote queen. I loved OneNote. I would have so many different tabs on there for any resource that you needed. But something that I did was I made a little tab in there and I called it Julia's Kudos. And I would screenshot every single kind note that someone said over to me. And I would put that in that one note. So whenever I was having a crummy day, because we're all going to have those moments, it's inevitable. It's part of being a human. You can look back at that. And it's literal data that your inner critic cannot (laughs) argue with. And it's like, wow, Jimmy told me this really kind note, or Alex told me something that was so kind, or Carly said this to me. And just letting that sink in, whether you want to have that on a digital platform, I keep that on my phone now. I have a little album in my phone of all the screenshots people have sent me. Or maybe it's even having a whiteboard in your space. And maybe you print out or write down those notes of compassion people send to you. I think it's so important to also have that community environment as well of knowing that you're not alone. You don't have to see all these challenges by yourself. You have a whole support network around you, which I think is so powerful to have as well. I I think that's, those are such great tangible things I think we can do. I, I really love that. I love the affirmations and the kudos, the kudos board. That's so wonderful. I, I think of that in my own life. I have, I mean, my birthday was like two months ago and I still have like the birthday card my sister wrote me up because it just brings me so much joy. And anyways, I'm like, I'm like, I need to find some way to aggregate that. I keep them in my like front, my front desk drawer so I can read them. But, um, but I love that idea of keeping those, those affirmations close, close to home, close to heart. Um, and just making your, your workspace joyful, whether you're in the office or you're, you know, um, uh, at home working. So thank you for that. I think that's, those are such great ones. Uh, I'm also curious, you know, what are some resources and books or tools that you recommend for those to dive deeper into, uh, kind of inner critic, inner critic management, if you will, that's not the right word, but um, do you have any favorite resources that you turn to? Absolutely. One of my favorite books is um, called, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on it, but I believe it's called Doing the Work. It's by Dr. Nicole LaPera. She's one of my favorite people on the planet. Like if I had to have dinner with someone, it would probably be with her. She also goes by the holistic psychologist, the holistic psychologist on Instagram. And she just shares so much really amazing resources into understanding your past and how it shapes your future. She has so many amazing resources and tools, not just kind of geared just towards therapy, but also learning how to tame your body, whether it's, you know, doing yoga or any other practices, really making your healing something that you can do that's really tangible and not just relying on one person to do that work for you. So I think it's a very, very empowering book. 
Another one that I really, really loved, and it's a little bit more geared towards someone who has complex PTSD, but it was written by a therapist and it's called CPTSD from surviving or from surviving to thriving. Also such a really great book. And he goes a little bit deeper into complex PTSD and what it is and how to manage it. But he does so much really incredible work about getting into the inner critic, where it stems from, how to manage it, which I think is so valuable. Mm -hmm. And then one of my other all-time favorite books is called Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself by Dr. Joe Dispenza. I love that book, especially the science nerd in me. I was pre-med, so I love he kind of goes into the the, um, the physiology of our brains and how habits are so addicting and why some habits are so hard to break. So Mm -hmm. I love that he provides so much of the scientific reasoning behind why it's so hard to change. So it kind of gives you that that empowering space of knowing, okay, this isn't just my fault. This is something that is really challenging and it helps you kind of break through that. And he gives you a lot of tips and tricks and tools for how to also break that habit of being yourself, which I think is really important, especially in this case, if your inner critic is running the show, it's a really great lens just to see how can I use this to help tame my own inner critic and move forward from that. Mm. I haven't heard of that one. That sounds, yeah, it sounds super super interesting too, especially with the science um, and you coming from your science background. So, and we'll drop the names of those um, books and links in the chat at the end of the session. Um, and we'll also provide them via email um, and in our community offsite to those of you that signed up that way, uh, as well as in the LinkedIn notes. So anyways, we'll, we'll share those. So Julia, thank you for, thank you for those. Um, I want to share a little bit, cause I know we have our audiences, we've, people from all over the world, um, people that are new managers, emerging leaders, entrepreneurs, executives. Um, I know a a thread I've even heard throughout our conversation is like that imposter syndrome of ultimately, like I think one of the biggest whispers I still get from my inner critic is like, who are you to think you can do this? Who are, you know, like, you're not ready for this. You know, this isn't the right time. who are you to ask for that raise? Whatever it is, but it's it's always that, like, who are you to think X, Y, and Z? Um, and so I think that that's something that, you know, even the older you get and the more established you become and whatever you're doing, you're like, wow, that's still that feeling of, or that voice that's asking me, like, is this okay? Am I allowed to do this? Is this, you know, I think that's, I think that's something that we face no matter where we're at, career-wise, life-wise, um, Unless you're just walking around thinking you're the, the cat's meow for cat's pajamas for cat's meow. What am I saying? Um, but I think, you know, like, I think that's something that's consistent. And so I'm wondering in your own life, you know, from being inside a company and facing that, that kind of inner critic in the form of imposter syndrome, you know, do you still face that now? And, and how do you, um, how do you help clients overcome that at the same time that maybe you're also dealing with your own? Like, you know, I think that's also a really amazing part about a good coach is being able to help people and then also be, be your own, be your own coach and look for outside help. So I'm wondering how you, two part question, like how, one, how you help with the imposter syndrome with, with your clients, but then also how you manage that for yourself as well, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Such a good question. I think I love that first part that you brought up is that you've seen a lot of this in threads from entrepreneurs and people who are really high up there who still deal with this. And it's so empowering to hear that because I think a lot of us deal with it. I think it's very rare for someone to not experience that. Like you said, the cat's meow, that 
that's probably a very rare breed of human that actually doesn't care about that. But I think a lot of us do have those thoughts and it's, it's almost encouraging to hear someone who might be a few levels above you still struggling with the same thing. I think it humanizes us and lets us know, okay, maybe this is just part about being a human and just knowing sometimes we may not feel good enough into a place and that's okay. And really finding that place for myself, especially a lot of the imposter syndrome really stem from what other people think about me. That was probably the biggest factor driving a lot of that and something that helped me make the move that I did this past year was realizing that there's this quote that I saw somewhere that the people who are ahead of you in your career, who can be a mentor to you, who you are inspired by, they will never criticize the risks that you're taking. They will never criticize the effort that you are putting in. They're going to support you. They're going to applaud you. They're going to cheer you on. The people that are probably going to bring you down, who are probably going to criticize you, probably do not have ambitions anywhere near that you do. They probably don't see themselves achieving any of the things that you are going to achieve. And I think having that perspective for me helped really shut down a lot of that imposter syndrome of just not worrying about what other people are going to think. That was, I think, one of the biggest things that I had to learn how to overcome the past year that has been so supportive and at least taming some of that imposter syndrome and just realizing I've got this, I can do this. And the more that you keep showing up, yes, you're going to fail sometimes. And I think learning that failure is okay. And it's almost, I almost want to say failure doesn't really exist. If you're stumbling, but you are picking yourself back up, you keep going, you keep learning from your lessons, you're going to get so much further than if you sit with indecision and if you don't take action, which is what my inner critic had me do in the past. And as far as how I use that with my clients, one, as a coach, I don't ever want to kind of step into my client's processes. I always show up with a lot of curiosity, a lot of compassion, and really allow them, I really want to empower them to do their own work. And I think the power of coaching comes, one of the best examples I give is if you've ever had a friend who's in a really crummy relationship, and if you've ever noticed and you tell this person, hey, this person that you're dating sucks, you shouldn't stay with them anymore. And then they keep coming back to you, keep whining about the same things over and over again. It's not until that person starts to realize in their own mind, oh, this relationship isn't serving me, that they'll finally take the action to leave and see it. But they have to see it themselves. You can't do that work for them. You have to help them see that in their own mind. So when I see my inner critic coming up with my clients, I start to ask them, what's that voice that's in your head right now? And sometimes we'll start to identify it. And some of my clients who are really aware are like, oh, that's my inner critic. There's Billy Bob, there's Karen, <laughs> she's running the show right now. And for someone who hasn't done that introspection yet, it's asking them, who is that voice? What do you feel in your body as that is coming up? And a lot of the times I'll kind of share that that sense of like feeling small. And sometimes I'll notice their body getting smaller and just saying, Hey, I noticed when you said this phrase, you started to shrink down a little bit in your chair. And there's something about making that mind body connection that I think a lot of us don't really understand or don't really see in our own selves that helps my clients realize that there's something else also going on. And sometimes they'll identify, Oh, maybe let's give this person a name and we'll start to work through in that sense, but it's that really that big step of depersonalizing it from themselves, giving it a new persona, giving it a new name, a new label, 
and starting to work with it and see it in that sense, in that kind of sense, that space. It's so fascinating to see my clients already start to talk about their inner critic and realize, huh, I don't have to listen to that. And once they say it out loud, it's so easy to get stuck in your mind and go down that spiral. When you start to actually say it out loud, you start to realize how silly it sounds. And there's so many times my clients will start talking about it and they start laughing. They're like, wait, this makes absolutely no sense. Like, why was I listening to this the whole time? So I think that's what's so fascinating about doing that work. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of take it out from like behind the shadows. Um, it was actually funny. My mom gave this great analogy of like, almost like in the wizard of Oz, right? Like the big, the big wizard. And then they pull back the curtain and it's like this little guy behind a curtain, you know, behind the curtain. And they're like, you know, you're like, what? You're like, Oh, it's yeah. like this giant thing that you, uh, that like has so much power, right. It's dictating. And then when you pull back the curtain, it's just this like little, little tiny thing, little human, just, um, or voice, whatever it is, but it's just, it's like that, I think uncovering it and looking at it straight in the face, right. Is it's like looking at, you know, living, to, learning to live and living, live like with a relationship to fear rather than letting it dictate your life. But I think, like you said, like then, then you can laugh and, and have a relationship with it um, and, and give it a nickname or whatever it is, but it's, it's pulling back that, that curtain and realizing it's, it's not something to be so scared of. Right. Um, Absolutely. So, I love that analogy. That's the best analogy is you pull that curtain back and it's kind of like, really? I've been listening to this thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. You're like, oh, it's, oh, it's you. Okay. Interesting. Um, we have a really great question in the chat as well from, from Allie Graf. So thank you, Allie. She says, can you ask the, uh, can you ask you um, how to be both humble and powerful? Is the combination of these two opposites possible? Allie, that is such an amazing question. I love that. And I think that kind of brings back to what I mentioned earlier is there's a lot of duality within our lives. And I really believe that two very different things can exist at the same time. You can be really pissed off at someone that you love at the same time. Like you can hold these two very, very different emotions together. You can be really frustrated with your inner critic and you can still have that sense of compassion. And I think when it comes with being humble and also showing up powerfully, I think when it comes to humility, it's understanding, especially showing up powerfully, like you can still use your voice and still advocate for yourself and advocate for what you're passionate about. There's still that humility that can coexist with that. And I think that's a really, it's a really fine line and a really subtle balance for how to accomplish both together. But I think it's absolutely possible. And I think sometimes in our society, if someone, especially women in particular, show up very powerfully, can see, be seen as very challenging or just being very bossy. And so it's learning how to still show up regardless. And that humility, I think just being able to be authentic, speak from your heart, speak from a very grounded space. Grounded is one of my favorite words to utilize in a really kind of really great space to be in. I know I myself used to not be very humble, especially when I was a swimmer. I remember being 12, 13 years old, talking about how amazing I am and thinking I was the hottest thing out on the pool deck. And I had a very humbling experience. I ended up having really bad breathing problems when I was 14 and realizing I had to relearn how to breathe at that time. And it taught me how it was just very humiliating, humbling as an experience. And moving on from that, I started to realize that it is a privilege to be able to participate in that sport. It's a privilege to be able to still show up and compete fully and 
really be there and you'd still having that powerful space to show up, still be there, but I didn't have to brag about myself anymore. And I think that's one of the things that's really fascinating, especially in your own career is how do you advocate for yourself? And sometimes it feels like you're bragging. Sometimes it doesn't feel very humble, but it's what you have to do for people to get to know you, to get to see where you're coming from. I think that's so powerful. So I hope, I hope that answers the question. I know we went in a few different directions, but I hope that provides a little bit more clarity. I really, I really appreciate you sharing, sharing that, even that story, Julia, I think that's, that's huge, right. Of, of, especially in athletics or whatever it is in, in having that experience that, that is humbling. Um, I, I think that's, that's huge. And I think the, the, the power side is you can be confident, right. And, and kind of solid in who you are in a grounded space. And I think some of that even comes from having a, a safe space. Like if you, if you're someone that's cultivated a safe space in your life where, um, you know, you know, the breathing exercises, you're self, right. You're self-regulating, um, you know, you have a support system in place. I think that helps for me, at least that's grounding. Um, and then, and then that way you can show up a more like that is powerful, right? If someone's really rooted in who they are and, and has clarity in what they're saying, there's a, there's a power in that. It's not, you're not the right. They're not the, you're not the loudest person in the room maybe, but if someone is carrying themselves with that presence of groundedness, that's when I've always felt like, Oh, I, I actually feel really empowered. You know, I feel empowered and embodied. Um, and I think that's also a sense of rather than the traditional power, like you said, that we think about versus being like empowered to really show up and be a better leader, right. Is, is when you kind of are, are self-aware. Absolutely. And I think a lot of the times when I, when I think of someone not showing up in a humble space, you know, maybe they're bragging, it feels like they're trying to prove themselves. It feels like they're sharing this because they want to get that external validation that comes from a very different space. So I think when you're very grounded, you know yourself, you know your strengths and you speak from that kind of space that involves both that, hum that humility, but also having that power involved. And I think those two can coexist and it's all about where it's stemming from. Is it stemming from that grounded space or are you trying to prove yourself or is there some sort of validation that you're seeking to have? And I think when that, there's that validation piece involved, it starts to pull back a little bit of that humility. Thank you for joining us on the Learn It podcast. We wish you well on your learning journey and see you next time.